Hello there. Welcome to No Extra Words, One Person Search for Story. My name is Chris Baker Dersh. I'm your producer and editor. This is season two Book Pairings. Major League Baseball kicks off its regular season on Thursday. The kickoff of baseball season is kind of a big holiday for my family. It's something we always commemorate. We are baseball people. Some people are raised in the church of baseball, and I was one of them, and I have an almost four-year-old who is also a gigantic fan. So it's something we always commemorate in my house and here on the show, and we're going to do that today by talking about some of the literature of the game. Now, if you think about the classics... When it comes to baseball literature, the touchstone books of the game, um, Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella, on which Field of Dreams is based, um, Men at Work by George Will, there's a couple of funny baseball remembrances by Joe Caragiulia, there's a whole lot of touchstones of baseball literature out there, and they all have one thing in common, and that is that they were written by men. It's really easy to think of this as a man's game and to think that the only voices that can really tell its story are the voices of men. And I don't think that's true. And so today on the show, I'm endeavoring to fix that by bringing you the voices of women who have had an impact on this game and the game has had an impact on them. And when we talk about women's voices in baseball, as good a place as any to start is with Jane Levy. Jane Levy was a sports writer for the Washington Post in the 1980s. And when that career ended, she wrote a novel based on that experience called Squeeze Play. Squeeze Play is something that I picked up pretty randomly from a public library when I was in college. And it's still a book I go back to every couple of years, about this time of year during spring training. And it holds up amazingly well, this book. Considering that it's now almost 30 years old, um, it's the first adult fiction title that we've actually covered on this show, which kind of was by accident, but it certainly is one of my favorites. It stars a female sports writer named A.B. Berkowitz, who has been assigned to cover the Washington Senators as a beat writer, travel with the team, and so on. And... It's hysterical. The Washington Senators, which were a fictional team at that time, there were actual Washington Senators teams through, I want to say the 1960s. The Washington Senators became, my dad's going to be ashamed of me, I don't know this. I think the Washington Senators became the Texas Rangers. You can check me on that. There is a team in Washington now, but there wasn't at the time this book was written. So it's a fictional team owned by a basically a fundamentalist evangelist preacher. So when she first gets this job, this lovely Jewish sports writer, in one of the early scenes of the book, she's calling the front office and they answer the phone, Washington Senators, praise the Lord. Like, this book is hysterical. It's so funny. It's not safe for work. It's crude. It's rude. It's delightful. Entertainment Weekly has called it the best novel ever written about baseball. Um, And it's set in... And Jane Levy's sports writing career was happening in the era of the locker room controversy. And this is something I distinctly remember not understanding as a child, why 
a woman needed access to a man's locker room. So in case you're as confused as I was back then, here's the whole thing in summary. Sports reporters were finding the best way to get the best interviews, to get the best access, was to interview players in the locker room immediately following a game. And female sports reporters, because they are women, were not allowed in the men's locker room. Female sports reporters basically said, if you're going to allow male sports reporters in the locker room, you have to let us all in. Because we have to be able to have access to those same stories in order to do our jobs. And so they fought this, and they won the right to access men's locker rooms for the purposes of covering stories. And it's really a non-issue now. I mean, you'll see this all the time if you watch sports on television. You'll see female reporters in the locker room after a game interviewing big-name athletes. But in the 80s, and to some extent the early 90s, this was a very controversial issue. So our heroine, A.B. Berkowitz, is right in the middle of this. And she takes us on the road with this team, and oh man, they are terrible. And I was a Mariners fan in the 1980s. I know from terrible, okay? I, I, know, I know what terrible baseball looks like. And she takes us right into the heart of terrible baseball and what it's like to travel on the road with this team that hasn't got a prayer. You know, you've got your veteran catcher who doesn't have the legs anymore, but he's all they've got. And you've got your cocky player who doesn't want her there, so likes to show off his assets whenever she's around just so that she he can prove to her that he doesn't have to put up with her. And you've got the stuttering rookie... You know, you've got the whole cast of characters, and they are so well-drawn and so well-realized, and she takes you right into quite literally the locker room, the dugout, to follow this worst team, and they end up going for, like, the record for most losses. You know, they're unintentionally courting this sort of, this dubious honor, if you will. So that's the premise. Like I say, it's not safe for work. It's delightful. It's absolutely hysterical. It's been issued in paperback. It's been reissued in paperback. The paperback edition is about a decade old now, but you can still find copies around. And in reading the paperback issue, one of the things I love... So today, Jane Levy is probably better known as a baseball biographer. She's written a biography of Sandy Koufax, a really well-recognized biography of Mickey Mantle, and my sources say she's at work currently on one on Babe Ruth. Um... And according to the paperback edition of Squeeze Play, when she approached Koufax about writing the biography, he wanted to know about her as a writer. So she sent him what writers call clips, you know, samples of her writing, things she had had published and all that kind of stuff. And he said, no, I want to read the novel. And so she sent him that. She sent him Squeeze Play. And his response was, boy, they must have really loved you. A delightful romp through baseball through the eyes of a female reporter in an era where female sports reporters were not getting the recognition they deserve. I will not say that female sports reporters get the recognition they deserve even now. They often get slid down into sidelight roles, you know, the sort of pretty girl on television that does the interview. Um, they rarely get top billing or any of that. So the struggle is real and continues to be real for women covering sports. And everything in this book, their reaction to her as a woman, this sort of gross all-boys club that I think now we would call toxic masculinity, this collision of religion and politics and all of that, because of course this is Washington, you know, it is amazing how almost 30 years later all of this rings still so very, very true. 
So that's Squeeze Play by Jane Levy. Politics and baseball and history, it's almost impossible to divorce the three from each other. My dad is a retired high school history teacher, and he has this interesting way of talking about history, throwing in this sort of mix of culture and baseball, and it's a really interesting pairing. I think probably more so than a lot of sports, just because of the way it's sort of knit into this history. You know, you think about your greatest trailblazers of the civil rights era. If you start to name the top 10 integrators, Jackie Robinson is going to make that list. You know, this, this game has more to it than just sport. And I don't think anybody captures that better than Doris Kearns Goodwin in her memoir, Wait Till Next Year. Doris Kearns Goodwin is known predominantly as a presidential biographer and historian. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning author um, her list of credits includes, my goodness, she wrote No Ordinary Time, which was about the Roosevelts. Um, she and Steven Spielberg collaborated on the movie Lincoln, which was based on her biography of Abraham Lincoln. She has a fairly newish book on Teddy Roosevelt called The Bully Pulpit. Um, the book that I really liked of hers, the president's biography that I think I've read in its entirety, is the one on Lyndon Johnson, which is very personal because she actually knew Johnson um, and had worked with him in the past. So that was both a biography and had a little bit of personal recollection in it. And so she's very much known as a historian and has been involved with Ken Burns on the History of Baseball series. And so she is definitely an expert voice when we turn to her memoir. Wait till next year. The inscription in the front of my copy of Wait Till Next Year, which is by the way used, because in the very front there's a note to someone who originally bought the book, but inside it says to Chris, a great mom, daughter, and Mariners fan, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, I didn't meet her. <laughs> the inscription was given to me because a friend of mine told me she would get it signed for me because she knew that I had given my original copy to my dad, which is where all of that comes from. Um, this memoir starts with Doris Kearns Goodwin's recollection of her own father. I think this relationship between dads and our love of this game is something that I can relate to. She talks about how her dad gifted her a scorebook and taught her how to use it to document the game. And of course, in this age, baseball was played during the day most of the time. Um, this is before a lot of the stadiums had lights. Uh, trivia question for you. The last Major League Baseball field to put in lights was Wrigley Field in Chicago, which didn't install lights for night baseball until the 1980s. So she would keep score in her scorebook while her father was at work and when he came home she would recount the game for him and tell the story based on the notes she had in her scorebook of what had happened and so in these pages you can see the development of not just the baseball fan but of the storyteller and the historian that she is just about to become so she starts with her career in fandom in 1949 and she takes us through the 1950s until the Dodgers take off for the West Coast and her sort of childhood as a Dodger fan comes to an end. There's something about 
Dodger fans of that era that, you know, the 1950s is long before me. So it's something I have a hard time understanding. But there's so much written and said about Dodger fans um, of that time. And I mean, you think about James Earl Jones's character in Field of Dreams and how he talks about a piece that he wrote where he'd always wanted to go play with the Dodgers on Ebbets Field. But they tore down Ebbets Field and moved the Dodgers to L.A., and yet still he had that dream. So wait till next year is sort of the echoing call of Dodgers fans from that era. And Doris Kearns Goodwin slides right into that. So it's really about baseball. It's about the 1950s, which is a pivotal decade in baseball and in American history. And, you know, there's this old joke my dad used to tell me about how Washington, D.C. in the 1950s was first in war, first in peace, and last in the American League. There's just something about the 50s that, again, this is before my time. But for baseball fans, it's it's a really pivotal decade. It's sort of the last of your old school, big hero. The rules have changed a lot since then, and and everything has changed. And the game is still the game, as my father would say, but there is something nostalgic about that time. And it also comes post-integration, so you really are seeing the best players in the game. And Whereas when you're looking at baseball teams in the 1930s and 40s, you have to realize that you're not so much. We'll, we'll get into more of the Negro Leagues and that story in a little bit. Baseball as a family thing is what ties together in my head, wait till next year with Squeeze Play. It's the scenes of young Doris and her father and her father teaching her to keep score and her father taking her to Ebbets Field and all of this. What it brings back to me is this kind of way in which this is handed down to us like a religion, like a culture. And it ties in with religion. And there's a scene in Squeeze Play where A.B. Berkowitz is talking about her background in the sport. And she mentions going into temple with her grandmother. And her grandmother is going through these rituals of this religion and knows that her granddaughter is watching out the window to see into the stadium. And so it's sort of like... Her grandmother doesn't really understand this obsession, but her grandmother's relationship with his religion and the granddaughter's relationship with this game, the two are not completely divorced from one another. That's how deep embedded, I think, for a lot of us, this game becomes within us. For Doris Kearns Goodwin as well, religion and baseball are interconnected. She talks about her dual passions You know, her life as a child was ruled by two calendars, the calendar of baseball and the calendar of the Catholic Church with its festivals and holidays. And there's a scene where she wants to see Roy Campanella speak, the legendary Dodger, but he is coming to an Episcopal church, which she, as a good Catholic girl, is not allowed into. And how she has to go to her father and ask what he thinks of committing this sort of sin to serve her two masters. We are in the hands of a master storyteller here, a master historian. There's all kinds of family stuff going on in here and pictures and the stories of the kind of drama of her life. And there's also what's going on with McCarthy and what's going on in the world. And you're never far from the backdrop of the history that's playing out behind you. And I I think I said this on last episode, it's amazing how they tie together that 
it's easy to dismiss the 1950s as being sort of before things happened, sort of pre-civil rights. And it's, you know, when you drill down into it, there's so much going on in the 1950s. And certainly for Goodwin, following the career of Jackie Robinson and the other players of her beloved daughters, you know, this is playing out. Fear of the bomb, you know, you name it. The 1950s is happening in this book as it unfolds. Sputnik and, you know, Little Rock and all the things that are happening. So it's sort of like a master historian pulls back the curtain to let us in on what ignited her passion for this to begin with. And it's the living through this decade of the 1950s as a kid in New York, as a Dodgers fan, you know, it's sort of the beginning of how she became who she came to be. If there's a better memoir on growing up baseball, then wait till next year. I would love to know what it is. So we've done fiction. We've done memoir. I want to touch on a little bit of nonfiction. Um, the one that came immediately to mind, just because of its approachability, is She Loved Baseball, The F. A. Manley Story by Audrey Vernick, which is a children's book that falls into the wonderful developing category of picture book biography. I love these. These are things that didn't exist 20 years ago or didn't exist to really in their current form. And we're kind of having a renaissance in them right now where it's a traditional picture book format. So it can be read aloud, you know, has the big pictures is ideal for sharing, but it's a true story about a person's life. And they vary widely by style, like any kind of picture book. And they're delightful for children. They're amazing for children, but I think they're wonderful for adults too, because what a great way to dip into a topic and get a chance to learn about somebody in a new way. Because a picture book is by its necessity short, picture book biographies can really only focus on a couple of key aspects of people's lives because they don't have the time to take you from beginning to end and go through every step. And so they narrow your focus. Like there's a great one on Joe DiMaggio that's just called The Streak. And it really just talks about those 56 games of his hitting streak. But in the process of doing that, you get to know all about DiMaggio. Now, prior to picking up this book, which I picked up when I was a school librarian, because I got it on sale, um, I had never heard of Effa Manley. And it's tragic to me that I had never heard of Effa Manley. It made me dig more into Effa Manley. And in fact, on my hobby podcast, which is about baseball, At a Girl, we actually dove deep and did a whole episode on Effa Manley. And I'll link you to that in the show notes. And we actually read her memoir and other materials about her. But for me, it all started with She Loved Baseball. Effa Manley, together with her husband Abe, was co-owner of the first Brooklyn and then Newark Eagles in the Negro National League from 1935 into the 1950s. Um, most people know at least something about segregated baseball and the, and the Negro Leagues. I don't think most people know too much. But, you know, baseball officially excluded black players from playing early in the 20th century. There's some evidence that some players played back in the 19th century, either by kind of passing or saying they were Indian or some of the teams were more flexible, but there were hard and fast rules by the 20th century about no black players in Major League Baseball. So the Negro Leagues, the Negro Leagues were not as structured as the Major Leagues of their same era. Um, teams would go in and out of business. Leagues would go in and out of business because of funds or lack of funds. 
But the Negro Leagues were a concern for decades and fielded amazing talent. There's a Negro Leagues museum in Kansas City. Kansas City, of course, home of the Kansas City Monarchs, one of the greatest Negro League teams of all time. And I have not had the pleasure of personally going there, but it's well worth a poke on their website. Their Twitter account's fantastic. There's so much history to the Negro League. So much, you know, there are names you've probably heard of. Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson's often referred to as the Black Babe Ruth. People who actually study these things say probably a more correct way of putting it is that Babe Ruth is the white Josh Gibson. And there are some records of these folks having played each other, you know, because in the offseason, baseball players, both in the major leagues and in the Negro Leagues, would barnstorm. And so they would see each other on the field in exhibition games. So... When we speculate about people being better than other people, it's not that we never saw them play against each other. It just never happened formally. Effa was owner and scheduler and sort of business manager of the Eagles. And she would go to owner's meetings. Her husband really was kind of the, from what I can tell from my research, her husband was to a large degree the personnel guy. Um, but Effa dealt with all of that off the field stuff. Salaries signing players, trading players, making sure they had transportation schedules, uniforms. She would sit in on owners' meetings even though they didn't want her there because she was the woman. Um, Effa was a lady who did not put up with too many things. And so she was deeply involved in day-to-day baseball operations. She was not just somebody's secretary. Let's put it that way. The team played second fiddle to the Monarchs for a long, 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 long time. And in 1946, they won the World Series against the Kansas City Monarchs. People credited the large, luxurious, air-conditioned bus Effa had bought for the team to help with their victory. And there is a lot of credible evidence that the 1946 New York Eagles were the best team in baseball, white or black, at that time. So the picture book goes through, it's beautifully illustrated. It covers Effa's life growing up. She was very, very light-skinned. Her mother was white, so she was very, very light-skinned. But growing up as a light-skinned woman in Philadelphia and then moving to Harlem where she got involved in early civil rights work and started a boycott of white-owned businesses in black neighborhoods unless they employed black sales clerks. Um, Again, this was a lady who didn't just let things go the way they were. She People say she met her husband at the 1932 World Series. That might be apocryphal, but she was definitely a Babe Ruth fan if she wasn't a baseball fan before she met Abe, and then they dove headfirst into the world of baseball. She was a fascinating lady, and I think a thorn in a lot of people's sides. So, in 1947, Jackie Robinson debuted with the Brooklyn Dodgers, that was not something that just came out of nowhere. That was not just a one day Jackie Robinson walked onto the field. Jackie Robinson was signed by the Dodgers in 45, went through their minor league system. In some ways, the signing of black players was a response to a wartime player shortage more than anything. And a need to make money. But in those early days, the white owners, Branch Rickey in particular, who is the one really responsible for integrating baseball, either didn't know these guys were under contract with the Negro Leagues or didn't care because those teams did not get compensated for the taking of the players. And the diff- the difference between the first player and the second player in the leagues 
is not a great amount of time. Jackie Robinson, of course, there's Jackie Robinson Day. Jackie Robinson debuted with the Dodgers April 15th, 1947. In July, Larry Doby debuted with the Cleveland Indians. Doby gets very little credit for the whole integration of baseball. He should get more credit than he does because he did everything in the American League that Jackie was doing in the National League, but with less press and less fanfare. You'll remember at this time, the American League and the National League did not see each other, did not play each other, except at the All-Star Game and the World Series. So every place Doby went, he was the first black player as well. He also had to go into St. Louis, which was the furthest South city in the leagues at that time, and which is where Jackie had the most trouble. It had an American League team as well at that time, the Browns. So... Larry Doby was signed by Bill Veck of the Cleveland Indians from Effa's Newark Eagles. And at that point, Effa had already started to see her players being leached away. You know, Don Newcomb, who would debut with the Dodgers not long afterwards, had been kind of stolen from the Eagles. And she put her foot down and she said, no, you're not taking this guy unless you pay us for him. And Bill Veck did and set the precedent that instead of just taking players and signing them. Because there's rules in baseball. You can't just sign somebody else's player. It creates a whole level of unfairness. I can't just say, you know, if I'm the Cleveland Indians, I can't say to the New York Yankees, hey, I like your shortstop, I'm going to offer him more money. Because of the fairness that that sets up across the league. And so there are rules about that within the league. The owners were deciding to ignore those rules in sort of this inner league when they involved the Negro Leagues. And Effa wouldn't take it. She took on Branch Rickey. She was no great fan of Jackie Robinson. Could have been that he was a monarch. But she was no great fan of him, of his, and felt like he could do more. And they tangled. And I think the book, it's a children's book. So it plays a little bit with that. Introduces you a little bit to that idea that there's this friction there. But of course, nobody wants to demean Jackie Robinson, especially not with children who need to understand how important this particular step in history is. But I think as adults, we can see there's more nuance going on there. And there's a really good argument to be made for the fact that baseball was never really fully integrated. It was on the field, but not off the field. The Negro Leagues had a whole system of Black owners, coaches, managers, umpires, the whole gamut. And when integration happened, the major leagues sort of took the players and left everybody else behind. And to this day, so it has now been over 60 years since Jackie Robinson took the field with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I don't want to diminish how important that moment was. But to this day, if you look at the numbers of coaches, of umpires, of front office people, all of that, there is not a lot of diversity in Major League Baseball to this day. And the percentage of black athletes in the sport is actually declining. And so I think, you know, there was a lot of fanfare. There was integration. It was a big deal. Many, 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 many African-Americans became Dodgers fans. Completely understandable. But I think baseball could have done better and didn't and needed somebody like Effa to stick a thorn in their side and say, hey, you know, before you keep patting yourself on the back, remember, you got to do this right. She also, she never let up on baseball, ever. She never left them alone until her death in 81. And the book does a nice job of going into this. She started a letter writing campaign in the 70s to get black Negro League players recognized by the Baseball Hall of Fame. And they sort of placated her and gave her kind of a committee that did a half a dozen or a dozen as sort of a token and then close up shop and went on with their lives. And she was not going to put up with that. 
And she continued to bug and annoy and cajole them until finally a standing committee was established, did a couple of kind of bulk inductions into the Hall of Fame of these players, including a really big one in 2006, which is when they inducted Effa herself. She was actually inducted into the Hall of Fame. She remains to this day the only woman ever inducted in the Hall of Fame. It surprises people when I say that because we've all seen a league of their own and we've seen the women in baseball exhibit and we assume that there are women in the Hall of Fame. It's not true. There's stories of women. There's women's memorabilia. There's women's, you know, all of that. But in terms of actual inductions of the people who get the plaques on the wall, who are actually included as the members of the Hall of Fame, there's only one who's a woman. It's Effa. And she was actually inducted by the committee that her letter-writing campaign helped create to honor the contributions of Negro League players, owners, managers, coaches to the sport. It's a beautiful book, and it certainly made me want to know more about Effa. It um, serves as a fabulous introduction to her life, and for the length that it is, its picture book size, it's very thorough. So, highly recommended um, I may get my young baseball fan to pop on for a few minutes at the end and tell you what he thinks of it. It's actually targeted at an age group slightly older than him. I would give it to primary students or even intermediate students, but, um, he likes it as well. So, Hey, did you come to talk about the book? Yeah. Come here. Tell me about this book. Who is that? Do you remember? Who's the lady? Who's the lady? Is that Effa Manley? Effa Manley. You don't have to talk too close. Rem- tell me what you learned about Effa Manley in this book. Effa Manley. I don't know her name. You don't know her name? What, what, what is she like? She, li- she likes baseball. She likes baseball? Was she in charge of a baseball team? Yeah. Did she buy them a, a fancy bus? She bought them a fancy bus. Do you remember some of the players the book talks about? Do you remember? No. no. Monty Irvin? Monty Irvin. And who else? Larry Doby? Larry Doby. Leon Day? Leon Day. What do you think? Do you like the book? Can I hold your baseball? No. Do you like the book? Yeah. Should kids read the book? Yeah. What's one thing you learned from this book? About the bus. About the bus? Was, is the bus important in the book? Yeah. What about the page that made Mama cry? What about this page that made Mama cry? And then the page at the end made Mama cry. Should we read together what it says? Yeah. It says, on Effa's gravestone, it says she loved baseball. In 2006, baseball proved it loved her back. Is there anything else you want to say? Okay, take the book upstairs. I love you. I now have my little baseball fan in the background. So I'm going to wrap up really quick. Um, When I was going over these books and talking about them, I realized that I inadvertently made it seem like women can talk about baseball as fans and sports writers and even go into the owner's box but don't play. And I would never want to leave you with that impression. Women have played baseball since it was two syllables. Softball's not the same. Softball's wonderful, but it's not the same. Um, And women deserve credit for playing the actual hardball version, and they don't get it. Um, So I want to go quickly over two books, 
two amazing women, two picture books um, that I would share with the baseball fans in your life. The first is Queen of the Diamond, which is the Lizzie Murphy story. Queen of the Diamond is by Emily Arnold McCulley, and it's based on 100% true story of Lizzie Murphy, who was born in 1894. Lizzie Murphy is widely considered to be the first woman to play professionally because by 17 years old, she was playing with the Providence Independence, and she was demanding to be played, paid. And she was demanding to be played, paid the same as men. Um, semi-pro teams at the time would basically just pass the hat and then divide that money equally after the game, and she would be skipped over by coaches. And they would say, oh, you know, you're just the girl, you don't get paid. Well, she did, and she deserved to be. We read that book out loud in the library about a week ago because my kid grabbed it off the shelf. And it completely fascinated the woman sitting next to us. She said, is that a true story? I said, it absolutely 100% is. Um, Lizzie Murphy is somebody people should know more about. She played as a first baseman. She was on several all-star teams. She was the first female player to play against major league players. She played in the all-star game, which is an exhibition game. Um... She pitched against Satchel Paige. I mean, her career is just amazing. So Queen of the Diamond, Lizzie Murphy, is one picture book that I would pick up. The other one is Girl Wonder, A Baseball Story in Nine Innings, which is about Alta Weiss. Also a fabulous story. Alta Weiss was a pitcher. She used to draw giant crowds. She played semi-pro. This would have been 1907-ish. Um, she couldn't play in skirts, so she would wear a skirt over her bloomers and finally just tuck it off in more bloomers because she said it was crazy to try to play baseball in a skirt. Um, they would run special trains to see her in the, in, um, play with the Vermilion Independence in Ohio because the crowds were so big to watch her play. She attended Sterling Medical College. She was the only female to graduate in 1914. She became a practicing physician and all of that while playing ball. No, I, still, I still want to talk in the mic. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. Hey, Mom. I hope you enjoyed that journey through women's baseball, the voices of women's baseball and literature. Um, it did take a while to get it to you. I, my goal here is always to give you the best possible content, um, even if that takes longer than you expect. Some pizzas take longer to bake, as the sign of the pizza place says. So between my special guest and everything else going on, we're a little bit late, but I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you enjoyed your opening weekend of baseball season. We are heading into National Poetry Month, and it is my goal to share with you great poets. Um... And I want to do that through children's books. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. The goal is not to share children's poets. Not that children's poets aren't wonderful, but we do a lot of that. I'm pretty sure everyone here has read their fair share of Shel Silverstein and Jack Prolitsky. And you should, because they're great. But that's not what we're doing. I want to bring you Langston Hughes and Emily Dickinson and Pablo Neruda. And, but I think when I say those things and when I start talking about poetry, people duck and run for cover because it's intimidating. Because... As my special guest for Poetry Month last year and I talked about, we teach poetry all wrong in this culture. We teach the hard stuff first, and then we try to convince you that it's fun, which seems very backwards. So we're going to take a different tack on this show. We're going to teach you all about the world of grown-up poetry through the way that wonderful children's books teach it to children. 
And we're going to start next week. I am at this point not going to make a promise about which day we're going to release this on because I've learned not to do that. Um, some pizzas take longer to bake. But um, the goal is next week to bring you the first Poetry Month episode. And that is going to feature Out of Wonder, poem Celebrating Poets by Kwame Alexander. That was an honorary illustrator award in last year's Coretta Scott King awards and then nikki giovanni edited a wonderful anthology called hip-hop speaks to children which is sort of the evolution of how the rhythms and beats that we know is modern day hip-hop where they have come from and the history of poetry um, as rhythm and dance and music particularly but not exclusively in the african-american tradition so we're going to bring both of those books um, we've been listening to a lot of poetry off the disc that comes with Hip Hop Speaks to Children in my house. So we're going to bring you both of those books next week. And we're going to just zoom our way through Poetry Month by really celebrating famous poets the way you've not seen them before is the way that I'm going to describe it. Um, once again, I appreciate you kind of making it through our episode today. I had a lot of fun bringing it to you, but whenever you bring a four-year-old on as a special guest, there's always a little bit of a caveat there. And I do apologize a little bit for the audio. There was a weird banging noise happening in the background of that audio this week that I'm hoping won't be a thing in the future. So thank you for making it through that with us. Um, if you want to know more about me, I always want more Goodreads fans. I'm at goodreads.com slash no extra words. You can also find me at no extra words on Twitter and Instagram. Our website is noextrawords.wordpress.com, where we always love to hear from you and hear your feedback and where you can also catch all previous episodes and find out how to subscribe to the show, which you can do on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Until we see you next time, I hope you go out in the world and find yourselves a great story. <laughs>